0: Welcome to the Book Hub, an online event space hosted by Luther Seminary.
1: Hello and welcome to this month's Faith Lead Book Hub, How Do We Talk About God Now? Evangelism in a Secular and Digital Age, with authors Andrew Root and Ryan Panzer. I am your host on behalf of Faith Lead, Leanne Pomrenke. During this month on the Faith Lead blog, and in the Learning Lab, we're focused on the theme, faith and non-creepy evangelism. Note the qualifier there. We are emphasizing that sharing our faith is not a role for church professionals alone, but for every Christian. Dr. Andrew Root is a professor of children, youth, and family ministry at Luther Seminary and the author of multiple books. Today, we are highlighting his book, Churches and the Crisis of Decline, A Hopeful, Practical Ecclesiology for a Secular Age. Andrew is joined today by Arlene Flancher, who works with both the Stewardship Leaders Program and the Children, Youth, and Family Department at Luther Seminary. Dr. Root, we look forward to hearing your hopeful and practical approach to sharing our faith in a secular age.
0: Thanks, Leanne. Um, Andy and I thought that it might be a good idea for me to ask some questions um, as a way for him to get at this topic. Your newest book series is all about the secular age and the imminent frame can you define those terms for us
2: all? Yeah, I'll do my best. I mean, the first thing I should say is I'm kind of into creepy. So, um, you know, maybe maybe creepy isn't all bad in, in some ways. Um, and we are near Halloween season. So, you know, there may be some reasons to uh, lean into the creepy. But yeah, my book isn't per se on evangelism, but I think it raises some issues that anyone who has concerns about evangelism can become clear on and i think probably the first one is you know really in a big way what is the objective of evangelism and i think we know pretty upfront that the objective is to share the faith or maybe to convert people if you feel comfortable with that if that's not too creepy um but i think inside of the kind of modern age that we're in and particularly inside mainline um, kind of Christian expressions, it's very easy right now for that to be very diluted and for evangelism to mean kind of winning people over to institutional affiliation. Um, and therefore, when you win those people over, then you they become resources for you. So there is a very much a way that evangelism can become instrumentalized, which leads to your question, Arlene, that um, a secular age is a very broad term. And we could spend you know two hours just talking about what that actually means. But what I'm building off is um, some philosophical work that really argues that a secular age is a time where beliefs and all beliefs become really contested, that we're very aware that other people, even across the street, believe very different things than us, and seem to be living fairly good lives doing it, or they don't believe anything at all, and uh, they seem to have a lot more time on the weekends or uh, maybe even have more purpose in their lives. So the kind of secular age we're in always means we're, we're very much near doubt and our beliefs are always quite fragile that we, we hold them. So that in itself raises a huge challenge for evangelism of how do you evangelize people um, inside a, a really mutual and always fragilized perspective? And, and what does it mean to share the faith um, as a fragile person um, whose own beliefs are quite fragile? And that doesn't mean bad. I don't think we need to define fragile as a bad thing. But in this kind of secular age, there's no way that um, I think we can think of evangelism as escaping doubt. And the reason for that is that second term that you raised is the imminent frame. The imminent frame really is a kind of default setting that we all have. If you've spent you know, a year or two or your whole life inside just the West, um, being educated in Western institutions, going to the mall, just, you know, uh, being part of a, um, a, a democratic society. Of what have you, that you are kind of set, you 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 find your imagination set in this imminent way, where we tend to think the order of our world is more of a natural material one than a supernatural one. So that raises another question about evangelism is, you know, what are you really calling people to? You're going to have to proclaim the depth of the gospel inside fragilization, but is this really, I don't want to say the payoff, but in some ways is, the, is what you're calling people to um, really an imminent reality. Like if you come to our church, we have great financial advisors and they'll help you get more money in your retirement or, um, or even some psychological therapeutic goods. Like if you come to our church, you'll feel better about yourself and your kids will have higher self-esteem or what's the, um, what's the little phrase from uh, Garrison Keeler? like it, it, it's a town where everyone's a you know every kid's above average and and all the men are are handsome and all the women are insightful and all the kids are a, a, above average I mean that's not how the quote goes by the way but um, it's something like that but there is a sense of does evangelism kind of lead to some kind of imminent payoff and we usually think it has to and in many ways American Protestantism has had to go to that level but inside this kind of secular age of fragilization is evangelism really calling people to a living God and, and what that looks like. And, uh, and that does go against the grain of our, our imagination. That's kind of the point of the imminent frame that we presume natural instead of supernatural realities, but whatever evangelism is, it's the call to a story that is fundamentally a supernatural story or a story that's fundamentally transcendent. And, uh, that becomes quite difficult. That becomes very much the difficult environment in which we we do evangelism inside. Arlene, you're muted.
0: Sorry about that. So as we talk about uh, the imminent frame and the decline of the church, there are so many people wringing their hands, um, talking about how the church is dying because there aren't, butts and seats, and people aren't coming back after COVID. Um, and the, the crisis for them is there aren't any people in their churches. And that's the crisis. And for you, you have a little bit of a different perspective on what the actual crisis facing the church is. And in your book, you use um, St. John the Baptist Church and a, and a, guy, a guy named Waz to sort of get at what what the real crisis might be. Can you say something about that?
2: Yeah, I'll first say that, you know, talk about creepy. The book is weird because uh, I do a kind of uh, Quentin Tarantino-esque alternate history that tries to look at a church that's a very common church, you know, that I think we all know, a church like this that I call St. John the Baptist that is nearing, needing to close and has no energy and no way forward and try to ask the question again and, you know, Quentin Tarantino ask, like, what would have, what would have kept this church open? What's an alternate history that would have allowed this um, church to stay open? So you know, if it, just sell the book, because I think you know that's partly what we're here to do. As gross and capitalistic as that sounds, um, it's weird. So if you're into kind of weird narratives and stories and alternate histories, this this is the, the book for you. But I do want to make the argument throughout the book that to be a Protestant, um, whatever shade of Protestant you are, means to always live near crisis. Um, And so there is something at the heart of what it means to kind of be from the evangelical tradition. And I I don't mean that in a kind of American sociological way. I mean that in a kind of um, 16th century reformation way to be kind of the people of of that Protestant reformation means that there is a sense where evangelism is essential because you are always kind of coming to know or coming to encounter the good news. But it always then means there's a crisis at play too. And if you don't like crisis, then you're probably not a Protestant. And there are other Christian expressions that may be more suited for you. But part of our issue, I think here in, in the late modern time is that we've got ourselves really confused of what the crisis is. And we've tended to think the crisis here in the 21st century, is that uh, the church has lost all its resources, and if we don't do something fast, the church will disappear. Um, But first of all, that's catastrophizing, and secondly, it has a very minimal and limited historical perspective. For instance, if you go to the church that was built in, in 635 by Aidan, St. Aidan, in Lindisfarne in the um, island, Lindisfarne Island right off of the eastern coast of England, there's a plaque on the back of this church that uh, has every bishop or priest in it from 635 all the way to 2018 when they put their last vicar in. And if you look at it closely, you'll notice there's a 300 year time where this church wasn't functioning. It didn't happen 300 years, which is a long time. I mean, just think if you were to go back right now, 300 years, you would be back, you know, you'd be back right after America, the American Constitution and the American project was was started a long time, 300 years. That church did not function because there were Viking raids and people had to leave that island. And so sometimes we think that we're in the midst of the worst crisis the church has ever had, and that's just not true. The church has had much more difficult times to deal with than the one we're dealing with now, which is a real spirit of of apathy, and um, a real kind of sense of of aimlessness. Um, There's been much deeper issues to face here, but we are nevertheless the people of crisis. But the crisis, I think, that makes us Protestants or makes the Protestant Christian expression quite beautiful is not the crisis of decline. It's not the crisis of less and less resources. It's not the crisis of needing more relevance, and therefore evangelism can never be tied to relevance or resources. The crisis we face is that encountering God is a crisis, that God um, meets us in a way that thrusts us into a crisis because God is God and um, we are not. And encountering this God who is God and trying to do evangelism to call people to a God who is God is a crisis. There's no human being who really in a certain sense has any real hold on who this god is this god's greatness is beyond what we can comprehend and it's quite a, a a feeble and yet beautiful um act to say proclaim the gospel um and anyone who proclaims the gospel or shares the gospel should do it in some sense with in an overwhelming spirit of humility but also in some some sense of fear and trembling because this is a god who is beyond all else. And I think sometimes we think that the church, and I try to play this out in this narrative in this book, that we think the church can give people God. And that means that we're not talking about who God, who is God. So whatever evangelism is, it is not somehow packaging God and giving people God as if God is a product or if God is a a pet. And um, if if evangelism becomes creepy, it becomes creepy because it tries to sell a very diluted kind of perspective of god and i think inside this kind of secular age of fragilization the, what evangelism does is try well it first has to make the confession that it has no way of finding this god that there's no way that we have the apparatus or we have the skills or we have the resources to find this god but this god of the bible does find us and the church does have practices and ways of being in the world um, as rowan williams says yeah in which i think we could uh, the great Anglican theologian, um, the former archbishop, which we could use in kind of thinking about evangelism. He says the Christian life is really like sunbathing. You just you just put yourself in the sun and wait. And in many ways, I think that's what evangelism is, is that you invite people to sunbathe. You invite them to simply sit in the sun, but you don't get to control the sun and you don't get to control when the sun shows up. Or um, if people have a certain sensitivity to feel burned by the sun you know like those that are, are not things you can necessarily can control but there is a way that our own lives um we can take this analogy i think too far here um but there is a way that our lives uh reflect if we've been in the sun um again this is i i all of a sudden feel like this is going to turn into a commercial for for sunscreen or something like that but um but there, you, you see you see my, my point within this. So the, the crisis is really the fact that God is God. And there's been a long tradition within ancient Christianity, w- within the mystical traditions that really talk about the way to f- encounter this God is to confess that there's no way for us to know this God. And it's in the midst of that negation and that midst of that admitting that we can never control this God, that this God is wild. This God of Israel moves as God moves and arrives when this God arrives and speaks how this God speaks. Um that that's really what we're calling people to, to search for this God, to be open to this God, to be available for this God to search and find you. Um, And that does allow a space for fragilization um, because there's a certain sense in the eventful encounter of the living God that, we always have to try to make sense of a a great interruption when we find this God. And so, um, it gives us a coherent story to live in, but this story is often a crisis in itself that we were lost. And now we are found, um, that we were dead and now made alive. Um, so the crisis we face long answer to your question, Arlene, is really the crisis of how do we confess that there's a living God before us, that there's a living God searching for us. And, uh, and not turn God into a product um, and to not uh, catastrophize that somehow it's up to us to do something when it really is God who moves and acts and brings back to life.
0: Thank you. And in the last few minutes that we have, we have like seven or eight minutes left. Can if if you had somebody um, come to you and you and wanted you to be super practical and say, okay, Andy, I need a three step process to stop the bleeding and move forward with hope. What would you say?
2: Yeah, I'll get so practical it'll be annoying. Like it'll be so practical it will not be functional and maybe that's part of part of the issue. Um I I think first of all like really practically and what I try to put in the mouth of these these folks who are in this narrative I write in this book is that this was guy who is this kind of young adult who stumbles into this Church really and stumbles into this community because his, his his grandmother, who he loves, is is buried there and has her funeral there. And you know, uh, you'll have to read it to to be caught up on that. But he asks, "Can you help me find God?" And the first move that that church has to make is to confess that they cannot. Um, they they have no way of finding this God, but they can journey with him as as God seeks for him, and they he can take on practices. And what they can do with him is wait for this God who is God to find him. And I think what we do in a kind of form of evangelism with our neighbors is that we come alongside them and we live in deep relationship with them that has no instrumental end, but is just about being with and for them as a witness to a God is with and for us. And really quite practically, we wait with them. We hear their stories and we tell them our stories and we do have to tell them the story. We have to tell them at the core. This is to me what evangelism is. We have to tell them the story of the ways that the God of Israel has taken what is dead in our lives and brought life out of it. And we have to and we have to continue to tell that. And they put a challenge on us by them being present because they have every right, particularly inside of this secular age, to say, mm, I don't buy that. Or I think you all are deluded by that, um, just as we have a right when they say, well, I don't buy any of this religion stuff, because I think really what makes a life worth living is, you know, just being able to take a bunch of W's and not take so many L's and for us to be able to say back, we don't buy it like we don't know how that how that really confronts the depth of the human soul's yearning. And we don't know how that really connects with the fact that um, we're passing away and dying. We don't know how that deals with disappointment and heartbreak. We don't know how that deals with actually the ecstatic joy that we experience when we feel bound to others. Inside of this kind of secular age, you can absolutely make normative claims but those normative claims that you make have to be embedded in your own encounter in your own encounter with the living God in your own story so really practically again to the point of annoying you is that what we do is in we wait with people wait for God to act and we do that in friendship and we do that in service and in care for them we do that in upholding really the world's humanity and recognizing that God's ministry is really not ultimately for the church, but it's for the world. So the church's job is to befriend befriend the world and wait with the world for God's coming, for God's action within the world. So I think what a church ultimately does really practically is learn to wait. And I know that makes everybody want to vomit right now because we're in a time where we feel like you got to do more and you better do it quick and you better learn to optimize that action into more more and you better accelerate it for more and you better get more and you better do more or you're all going to die and our hair all wants to start on fire. But I actually think that will form us in the wrong way. And that will end up leading to huge forms of burnout and will open the doors to huge forms of idolatry. And what we need to do is wait and trust in God and learn to put ourselves in the sun and um, take on the practices to do that and wait for this God um, who is God. And we need to tell each other stories within that. And uh, one way I talk about that in the book is then to have um, what I call a watchword, which is a way that God has arrived within this community, a kind of shorthand story of of God's arriving. And uh, one of the examples I use is uh, um, Dr. King, Martin Luther King Jr. had his own watchword during the civil rights movement after an experience of. Um, loss and, and feeling like the bus boycotts in Montgomery were not going well at all, and that uh, he was not leading well. and then he got a late phone call and on on the other line was someone who said they were going to bomb his house and he had his infant child in the house and he couldn't get back to sleep and everything was coming undone. He sat at his kitchen table and he prayed. and he told God, I can't do this. I can't I can't do this. He confessed his impossibility. and he waited in the midst of that prayer and he heard God say to him, Martin, when there is no way I'll make a way. And one of his most uh, beautiful sermons is his sermon from Chicago, where the no way God makes a way. And it became his watchword, the watchword he held and that he infused within the civil rights movement was when there is no way God will make a way that we're the no way people where God makes a way. And I think what Congregational leaders can do is come up with their own watchwords that are endemic and um you know indigenous to that community that are embedded in the stories of that community, and live out and live out of that story. And so, we the kind of waiting we do is not waiting at an airport for a delayed flight where you're just annoyed out of your mind. The kind of waiting we do is attentive. It's attentive waiting with with these stories, um, with the biblical story of how God acts and moves. And, uh, I think that makes it a a kind of rich kind of waiting, a, a kind of waiting that's deep with resonance of, of living fully, um, in life. And, uh, yeah, so it's really practical, Arlene. Um, so practical, it, it probably annoys people. And I think that's something that we have to, to confront the way our late modern world tells us that we better get busy or we're going to be dying. I mean, there's a kind of, um, Shawshank Redemption kind of thing that you might be eating with your popcorn and your Swedish fish. But, you know, you remember that famous line from uh, um, from uh, Andy where in in Shawshank Redemption, where he says, either get busy living or you get busy dying. And that is a message that's told across the modern world that you better get busy doing something or your church is going to die. And I actually think that's that's wrong. That's a malformed perspective. That the kind of action we need is not the kind of action that gets busy or um, everything comes undone. It's a kind of attentive waiting. It's a kind of action that seeks um, for a deep kind of relationship with the world that doesn't want more out of it um, and turn everything into an instrument, but is willing to be with and for and wait on a God who is God.
1: Wow. Okay, so uh, there was a lot there. We have some um, some fans who have read your book already in the chat, who are um, noting that uh, part of what we're talking about, we're not trying to save the church, um, but we need to acknowledge that some of the ways that the church has acted in the past have been misguided. Um, so would you talk just a little bit about um confession or uh what the church can say about how we've brought some of this decline on ourselves by doing the wrong things or doing harmful things
2: yeah i mean i think there's no doubt it would be um it'd be historically kind of um yeah just uh historically I'm wrong to assume that the church hasn't been culpable for for evils within the world that we absolutely have to confess for. Um and I, and I think we have to be really aware of that and and bold within that. I think it's it is um you know interesting that there there's always this tendency for us not to want to face our own impossibilities and our own nothingness and to always kind of concede to the temptation that if you in some sense, hurt others or take power over others. That somehow you sustain yourself. And there, there is, I think, something fundamental in the Christian message that uh, you only find life by losing life. And the church has not been brave enough to do that all time. At all times, I also will say, and maybe you know, it's easy to say this in panelist mode where I can't see the fifty people. But I do think we need to do some work, and you know, I personally need to do some work on how much our discontent around Protestantism and around mainline Christianity is really with the church or if it isn't really with capitalism. And I think we're in the late stages of capitalism and there's something really Insidious about the way late capitalism works, that it really makes you discontent with everything except the system in which you're living in. You know, so it's really easy to blame your spouse. It's really easy to blame your children. It's really easy to blame, um, you know, the media. It's really easy to blame this person. It's really easy to blame that person. And it's really easy to, to blame the church. And there's something really insidious about it that those who are, who are the closest to you or you have the most intimate encounters with, you can blame for deep forms of discontent and. I don't know sometimes I, I again I, it's easy to say cuz I can't see people's faces here but I I sometimes wonder listening to people that they blame the church for things that seem like are really just the environment of living in a late capitalist neoliberal age and um that this forces us to compete at all turns and I think what the church should be culpable for is giving into that kind of mode where we're we're competing and need to do more with less or um or we should feel ashamed, you know. Or we should, you know, it's it's a it's a very weird thing that these the church is culpable for this. But there are some ways that even Christian virtues have been turned into monsters. And like happiness is one of those things. Like you can look back within the Christian tradition, and um, ancient Christianity had this place for the happiness of the soul as it rests in God, but that's been really turned on us. And now we have a lot of people who live under the burden of them thinking they failed themselves to be happy and that you have to somehow find your own, your own happiness. And that is not necessarily endemic within the Christian tradition, but it is a way that that's been taken and shifted within a consumer capitalism that makes us feel this way. So I just think we have to be really careful on what we blame the church for. Now, that said, there's all sorts of culpable things that, that we have to enter into confession. But at least sometimes on Twitter, I feel like what people are really angry about is that they are living in a neoliberal age and that the church has not been prophetic enough and pushing back against that And, um, and I think often we don't disconnect our form of action. And that's one of the big things that this book is trying to push is that if we don't get clear on what what we mean by faithful Christian action, whether that's evangelism or pastoral care, um, or what have you, it will end up being co-opted by this form of efficiency, this form of optimization, um, this form of late neoliberal capitalism. And it's pretty empirically proven in the last 20 or so years, it it promises people happiness. It makes them really deeply unhappy, um, and so that will tend to lead you. You know, we're in it. We're. I'm answering this question too, too fully now, but we're in an utter age of grievance, and so it's really easy to to look at our own unhappiness and look for someone to blame. And the church deserves some blame, and I think the church also gets a lot of our grievances. And one of the things this book is trying to push to is that the church should never be the church should never be the star of its own story. And I think sometimes the church has has held too significant a place. While it has an essential theological place, at another level, the church's job is only to be a supporting star in the larger star, the the real story, the two stars of the story are God and the world. God is the the star of the story and God's action is for the world. And the church is simply there to narrate it. it, plays an incredibly important role But when we lift it too high, then like Bonhoeffer's told us, you know, decades ago, we tend to idealize the church and anyone who idealizes the church does not love the real church. And I think we need to get back to that.
1: Right. Ryan, I want to give you a chance to respond. If anything stood out to you that um, you are not going to cover in your segment that you wanted to raise up, feel free to jump in. Well, one of the... uh observations I've had about just the way digital media acts on our lives is how uh, it's built upon this experience of, of novelty and novelty creating this quick hit of, of dopamine, which keeps you coming back to Facebook and, and Instagram. And this the digital age really, in, in some ways, seems to be about constant experiences of, of, of novelty. Uh, how do you talk about a living God and within an ancient tradition, in a world that is all about novelty and the dopamine release that comes with novelty.
2: Yeah, well, and and um, I think this is a, this is an interesting perspective. I mean, I think uh, in in Ryan and I in conversation are is really interesting because I you know philosophically am more of a um, Heideggerian, which means that I have deep deep suspicions about technology in the way that technology. Um, really disconnects us from our own being in, in in a certain way and by being I mean in this this kind of deep sense of as Heidegger says Dasein this deep sense of being thrown into the world of, of having this life to live and so one of the ways that this novelty actually can function that it can be quite insidious which the um Korean philosopher Byung-Chul Han talks a great deal about in his books around um kind of around social media and novelty is that we get really, really um, connected to living on the surface. And so he talks about we become really addicted people to the smooth. And one of the things that I think is quite fascinating, and he goes through this, like, look at it, he, he, he does Jeff Koons art, you know, these, this, this art that's all glass that you can take selfies with. And, and then he talks about our cell phones. how they're like these smooth spaces. And we love this, this kind of smoothness. And we become people of the surface and we become people of the smooth that we can't even cope with with negativity but negativity is what gives us a sense of our being of actually being in the world and i think at the heart of the christian story is this deeply negative moment that god in the person of jesus christ is crucified dead buried and rises again so that all which might destroy us is overcome with new life um and so yeah novelty in and of itself i think I worry become addicts us, and I guess your, your brain science then kind of connects here too, is it can addict us to the smooth and take us outside the negative, which then makes us people that ironically have a really hard time with otherness, any encounter with otherness, whether at um, at any kind of kind of sense, true human otherness, divine otherness demands some level of negativity. And by that, I mean of, of, of real separation, of not something you can possess, of something that that transcends um, your control of it, thats something that is truly other. So the way I think novelty can happen at, at just any second um, with the way our streaming services and things like that work, do disconnect us from a kind of connection with our thrownness within the world and um, and and make often make our world too smooth of a place and ironically make us quite depressed with the smoothness because we start to wonder, is there any meaning here at all? Is there any purpose here um, at all? So, um, yeah, I mean, a longer conversation to ha- be had.